You know, the, here's the thing. We think we can't really make a difference, but we can. And, and we can by just saying, what are my passions and talents and skills and experiences? And how can I channel those to do something that might help someone else? But it's just step by step, like, you know, just one little thing after another. And suddenly a guy's walking out of prison and it can be all sorts of things. It can be, you know, believing in a political candidate that you support. It can be all sorts of things. And, and so this is, this is just what I kind of think about midlife is we've got all these resources in terms of years and experience and skills that we've developed and it's time to use them for the greater good. Hello, you are listening to the Late Bloomer Living podcast, where we are reimagining and redefining what it means to be in midlife, where we are gathering energy, momentum, and excitement for our next chapter via candid conversations with other midlifers about their own pivots, pitfalls, and triumphs. I'm Yvonne Marchese, your host, and I'm so happy you're here. So guys, welcome back. Before I introduce you to today's guest, I have a quick favor to ask. If you are a regular listener, I could really use your help in letting people know about the podcast. Can you take a quick second to leave a review or rating if you listen in the Apple Podcast app? That really helps to make sure that other people can find these conversations. And, you know, if you could simply tell a friend about it, that would be fantabulous. So, oh, and one more thing before we get going. I want to remind you that I created a free guide for you designed to help you start taking the steps towards your next act. It's a workbook called Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. Basically, it's a series of emails with ideas and practical exercises you can use over the course of several weeks to get past feeling stuck. You can do these at your own pace as they will be waiting for you in your inbox when you're ready for the next step. You can find the sign-up link easily. You just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and then click on the show notes for this episode, which is number 36, and you'll find it there. So I recently read a book called Life Reimagined, The Science, Art, and Opportunity of Midlife. It's by Barbara Bradley Haggerty. Um, if you listened to last week's episode with Mike Adsit, You've already heard me talk about this book, and I'm so excited to say that my guest today is the author. Ta-da! I'm so excited. Um, some of you may recognize her voice because Barbara Bradley Haggerty worked for NPR for 19 years as a reporter covering law and religion. And by the way, I am a total NPR nerd, so having her on is really kind of a dream. Um, anyway, you know I love to have people on this podcast who have been through some sort of midlife pivot to talk about how they got through it. Well, after reading Barbara's book, I knew I needed to have her on to talk about her own midlife shakeup, which led her to writing the book. So yeah, I'm just going to take a hot second to read one of the author recommendations from the back of the book jacket that expresses exactly how I feel about it and what I hope you'll get a taste of today. This is what Eric Weiner, author of Geography of Bliss, had to say about the book. He says, Please don't have a midlife crisis, but if you do, drop everything and read this book. 
Barbara Bradley Haggerty has written a sharp-eyed, big-hearted book destined for widespread dog-earing and underlining. Generous, wise, and often funny, this book will leave you revitalized. Yep, that really hits the nail on the head. I literally took notes while reading this book, and I've never read a book so full of scientific studies and information presented in such a way that I couldn't wait to see what was next. And... I think it's because Barbara managed to add the story of her own midlife struggles into the middle of all the good-for-you information that she packed in. So I can't wait for you to meet her. Let's go. Hey, Barbara. Thank you so much for being here. Oh, it's great to be here, Avon. Oh, my gosh. I'm tremendously honored. Um, so I, I, so I just want to mention right off the bat that I think I found you through listening to another podcast because I am a complete podcast junkie. I can't remember which podcast it was right now, um, which led me to your book, Life Reimagined. And I read that book and cover to cover, took notes. It was incredible. Um, <laughs> That's great. <laughs> I, 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 I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it. I love the way that you um, interwove your own story into your research about midlife and aging. And uh, it was so, I felt like I got to know you, but I also felt like the research was incredibly insightful. Um, thank you. Just, thank you for writing that book. Well, sure. You know, I think what's really true is that people remember stories, they don't remember facts. Mm -hmm. And so my view is if you, it, kind of a spoonful of sugar makes a medicine go down. Um, if you want someone to know something, tell a story. And they will remember, they won't remember that, you know, 5% of people did X, Y, and Z. They'll remember that, oh, Yvonne did such and such. And that kind of, oh, that reminds me of this larger insight. And so I think that's the way really, that's the way I like to, to absorb knowledge. And I think people just, you know, we're storytellers. Our lives are stories, right? Absolutely. So that's what we absorb. Yeah. Yeah. Well, well done. Oh, my goodness. Um, so your, your book, in fact, led me to, um, speaking to Mike Adsit and the way, so I just talked to Mike last week. He's, he's going to be uh, a week before your episode comes out mm -hmm. into the world. So, um, listeners will have heard his story already, but I, I tell you, I got through chapter, I didn't even get through chapter seven before I felt like I needed to contact Mike because again, yeah. the storytelling, um, you brought him to life for me and, and what he went through and just incredible, incredible. He's, he's an amazing guy. He's made such a difference in my life. I mean, for a guy I, I never see anymore because he lives in Michigan and I live in DC. Uh -huh. um, and we, t we text occasionally, um, but the lasting impact that he made on my life I, with cycling and this notion of having a little purpose, um, I mean, every single day I think about him. So, and he's a wonderful, wonderful guy. I mean, he's turned his hobby into something really selfless, which is to help other people figure out what to do about cancer once they get that cancer diagnosis. Yeah. So he's turned something that he personally loves into kind of a public service. Yeah, incredible, right? Yeah. Um, so I'm gonna, I wanna back up with you a little bit to to kind of rewind, You you had a, full career on NPR and uh, you took a book leave to do this, uh, to, the, to do that project, that book, right? 
and then I think there was some vocal cord issues that happened mm -hmm. for you. And I'm, I'm not totally clear on the timeline in my head right now, but I want you to kind of go back and tell us about how this, how your journey, how you unwound from NPR and have gone on to the new phase in your life. Sure, sure. So in 2012, um, I began to have vocal cord problems and I would lose my voice. I was I had been at NPR at that point for something like 18, 17, 18 years. I love NPR. It is, mm -hmm. it's not only a, um, a wonderful kind of news organization, it's a wonderful family. And I absolutely loved working there. But what I found is that I would lo lose my voice for days or weeks at a time. Mm -hmm. And um, then the chronic pain started in the kind of spring of 2012. And it would ratchet up when I was on deadline, which is quite a lot at NPR. <laughs> you're on deadline a lot or you're, or you're anticipating being on deadline. Um, and so what happened is the pain became kind of insurmountable. It got to got to be the point, it got to the point where I would think, can I live with this pain for a day? No, I can't. Can I live with it for an hour? No, I can't. Can I live with it for a minute? Yeah, I can live with it for a minute. Wow. Let me get through the next minute. Wow. And what I, what I realized um, is something that I learned in researching my book. So I was at NPR, didn't yet, hadn't yet gotten my book contract for Life Reimagined. But what I realized was something that a man named Carlos Stringer told me later. He said, if you're in the wrong job, it, one of two things will happen to you. Mm -hmm. Either you will leave your job or your body will force you to leave your job. Mm. And the reason I was in the wrong job was not anything to do with NPR per se. It was just, I... I had been doing daily news actually for about 30 years and I didn't thrive on those kind of short deadlines. Some people do, but I like to have a little more control in my life. And so the cumul accumulated, accumulated stress of not only the news deadlines, but also kind of resisting them or, or, or being worried about them, it just created a problem for me, which attacked my vocal cords. I mean, it's clear that this was stress. Uh, mm -hmm. and, and the reason I know it's stress be, is because I realized I couldn't continue with this kind of pain. And so I thought, okay, what do I do? Well, I need to step away before making any big decisions. So you don't wanna make decisions in a crisis time. Mm -hmm. Before making any big decisions, let me just step away from NPR, get another book contract. I'd already, already written one book um, and, and see what happens with my vocal cords. So I wrote um, a proposal for the only book I could think of right at that moment, which was on how to thrive at midlife and um, how to avoid a midlife crisis <laughs> because I felt like, oh, I'm, I'm having something of a midlife crisis, so I better figure out how to avoid, how not to go into the depths of despair. And so uh, I got a book contract to write, write Life Reimagined. And um, what I learned from that, aside from the fact that I needed a change, my body was forcing me to undertake a pretty major change in my life. But I also learned that um, I needed to kind of pivot uh, on on my on my career, essentially. That um, you know, when you when you're 
middle-aged, you have a few decades behind you and you know what you're good at and what you're not good at and what you like doing and what you don't like doing and where you thrive and where you, you know, are hurting. And by that point, you know, but I was, you know, 53 at the time. And so what I could do is say, okay, how do I try to eliminate the parts where I'm really bad, where I'm really hurting, where I'm not thriving as much as possible and emphasize those parts where I am thriving, where I'm particularly, where I think I'm actually more talented. Okay, how do I, how do I make that pivot? And so I thought about what I do, um, what I love doing, and I love uh, telling stories that make people care about big ideas. That's always what I've loved doing. Um, and Me NPR. Too. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And, and NPR was a wonderful venue for that, but it wasn't the right venue at that time. So I thought, how do I get away from daily deadlines mm -hmm. and pivot and tell stories about ideas that I think are important uh, and still be doing what I do, journalism? So that's when I ended up writing this book. And I essentially did pivot. I did you know, I didn't have the horrible deadlines, daily deadlines. I did have a big deadline at the end of the, at the end of my book contract, but, but I, um, I was able to kind of relax and do what I do like doing and what I think I may do well. And that allowed actually the pain in my vocal cords just plummeted, wow. just plummeted. I mean, before, when I was at NPR, right before I left, um, I was taking 24 pills a day and not, not pain pills, but amitriptyline and, and gabapentin to kind of relax my vocal cords and mm -hmm. um, 24 a day. Wow. And I felt like I was trying to run through water in a swimming pool. I just felt so slow down. down. Yeah. yeah. I oh, mean, it really created, and at a place like NPR, you can't feel that way. You have to be ready to, you know, jump in and do a story on a moment's notice. But what happened is I started, I, I left NPR temporarily to write this book contract for a year. And my pain levels came down to the point where, you know, I was taking two or three pills at night, more just as a psychological safety net. Yeah, to be able to sleep. Right, to be able to yeah, sleep, to yeah. just not worry so much. It doesn't mean that my vocal cords are perfect. They're not. They still get tired. Mm -hmm. But what it did mean was I was out of the chronic pain. And uh, so what happened is when NPR, when I was writing my book and they came out with a um, buyout, um, I decided to take it kind of much to the shock of all of my colleagues because I had a great job. Mm -hmm. But they didn't know that underneath it was it was really damaging to me. Yeah. Um, and so I took the buyout and went into the vast unknown. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Fortunately, I had a husband who is a tenured professor. And so we had an income and he was so generous about letting me about letting me try to rebuild based on a more solid foundation that was sustainable for me. He was yeah. just terrific. But then I went into the kind of great unknown. Wow. <laughs> that is, that's a scary step. That's a scary step when I think, especially in midlife, you know, it's, uh, I, I've right. taken a couple of steps into the unknown myself and, you know, doing it in my twenties was scary enough, but right. <laughs> as I've right. gotten older, it, right. Yeah. right. No, no, it is a scary step and it's an identity step too. I mean, mm -hmm. you know, one of the 
one of the difficulties I had was who am I if I'm not NPR's Barbara Bradley Haggerty? Right. Who am I? Mm-hmm. Um, and before, you know, it was easy if I'd be at a party or meet someone, you know, I'd say I'm Barbara Bradley Haggerty. And a lot of people would, you know, recognize my voice and my name. Right. And suddenly I was kind of drawing away from that. And, and it, there was a bit of a, what I thought might be a bit of an existential crisis. Um, but then, Yvonne, I, I recognized something. And this is an important lesson. It was a hard lesson to learn for me in midlife because it was, it, it was um, the fruit of a hard assessment of where I was in my career. Uh, you know, it's like the, I mean, a lot of things are like the, the military where it's a big pyramid, it's big at the bottom and then it just gets smaller and smaller and smaller until you reach the top, the generals and all of that, the admirals. And that's how life is often. I mean, you, we, we start out in, in our 20s thinking that we'll find the cure for cancer or we'll win a Pulitzer Prize or <laughs> whatever. The world seems infinitely, uh, it's an infinite opportunity. Right, so many uh, possibilities. You and, you and me to be rich and famous, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> and, and, you know, names that will be, will be remembered by our great, 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 great grandchildren and will be in the history books. Well, you know what? That actually doesn't happen very often. Mm -hmm. And so one of the kind of realizations I had to have is, gee, you know what? I may never be David Brooks. I may never be Ann Patchett whom we've named our dog after. Um, I may never be, you know, one of those, I may never win a Pulitzer Prize. So let me just think about what kind of impact or what kind of life I want to live now. Am I going to be dependent on the world's approval mm -hmm. and whether I'm well-known or winning prizes? Um, and if I am, then that's a really fickle place to be. The world is oh, fickle, boy. right? Yeah. And you really learn that by the time you're middle-aged, um, that it, you know, it caters. I mean, you look at what's popular on the internet. Who would think the stuff that's popular? And it's not necessarily worthy. I mean, mm -hmm. cat videos are not worthy. <laughs> I'm sorry. I don't like cats. So there's a problem. <laughs> I've just lost half your listeners. Um, <laughs> but, but. What I came to realize is that at this stage, if I'm never going to be Ann Patchett or David Brooks, at this stage, what I need to do is think about what I do that stands, you know, kind of sets me a little bit apart. What are my unique gifts? Mm -hmm. Maybe they won't make me famous, but what, what gifts do I do have that I can actually employ to a better purpose. And here's the second part of it. So A, assess yourself. Okay, I'm not going to find the cure for cancer, but what gifts do I have? What experience do I have? Where is my position in, you know, in the world, so to speak? Like, what do I have? What do I bring to the table? What's unique about me? And then the second part of it is, how do I make this about other people? How do I fix problems? Generativity is the hallmark of a happy midlife, that you give back. You you've gotten all of these years, we've earned our income, and we've gotten all this experience and, you know, had all these opportunities. And now it really is the time to give back. So what I realized is that 
I had to not be judged by my accomplishments in the world and the awards I got or how many likes I got on my latest Atlantic article or whatever. I had to be judged. I had to judge myself on whether each day was meaningful. Am I doing things that are inherently meaningful, whether they get any notice at all? Whether, right. you know, whether meaningful no to even, you, right, right? Meaningful to me. Yeah. Because that is the standard. Right. So what is meaningful to me? What gets me up in the morning? Mm-hmm. And and it's not just about me, but what do I do where I can look back when I'm 90 and go, oh my gosh, I am so glad I did that. You know, it wasn't about kudos and it wasn't about likes on the internet. It wasn't about any of that. It was about accomplishing something that was meaningful both for me and for others. Yeah. Something that gives you energy when you're through the yep. day that, that just drives you through. Clearly, I right. mean, I, I can I can see and feel your energy and I can see how right now you are doing the things that drive you. Right. right? Yes, I am. Yeah. I am. And, you know, it gets to, I mean, I'll, I'll mention it. I can save people the, you know, four ninety five plus shipping um, by telling them the big two secrets about midlife. <laughs> I was just and, gonna, I was just gonna go there. <laughs> so the two big secrets about midlife is friendship, and that's not, I mean, friendship, yeah, within your family and your spouse and your kids and all of that, but actually, external friendships are incredibly important to uh, to midlife, um, to thriving at midlife, partly because you can. There are two things. One is that you can keep the friends that give you, bring life to you and energy to you. And you can kind of back off from the friends that drain you. Whereas you can't do that with family members, right? Right. (laughs) You can't say, oh, I don't like my (laughs) mother-in-law. You know, you just have to kind of suck it up and go to dinner with her. Um, And so, so friends, they can be a really positive force, but they're also a safety valve that you're, your family often can't give you. I mean, the friends I have will, there are other reporters or producers who can, we can talk about stories and we can frame things and we can talk about the meaning of life and journalism. There are people who I can complain about, you know, the fight I just had with Devin and I can't complain to Devin about that, you know? So I need my friend to complain about it. And so there's, you know, there's, as we have aging parents, I mean, my mom is 99 and I've been through a whole lot with her and I have a couple of friends who are going through the same thing. So they're the safety valve that allows you to, um, to kind of of let off, it's not just letting off steam, but make connections that help you navigate the world. That's what they do. They help you navigate the world. So that's one thing that's really important. The other thing is the idea of purpose in life. And for that, um, and this actually leads to uh, the Michael, uh, to Mike Adsit. Um, I, what is really clear from the research is that the silver bullet, that the key, even more than friendships, to thriving in midlife is having a purpose in life, having a reason to get up in the morning, having something that you are invested in. And I mean, the science is unequivocal on this, that people with a high purpose in life are less likely to get Alzheimer's, less likely to have a heart attack or a stroke. 
even if they have Alzheimer's, they don't show the symptoms. They're much less likely to show the symptoms of Alzheimer's than people who are low in purpose in life. I mean, there, you know, studies have shown that people who have like intermediate level Alzheimer's disease did not show a single symptom. Yeah, no I was just watching nothing. your TED talk, and um, I think it was the research with Julie Julie Schneider's yes. research and right. Mar Marge's brain. Right. Uh, oh my goodness! I, so yeah. tell a little bit of that story, real quick. Sure. So, so Rush um, Medical Center out in in Chicago has been doing these uh, these studies on midlife and what and and oh, actually aging and what keeps your brain vibrant. And they have a whole bunch of things. Well, what they've done, what they did, is they um, went to a um, retirement house where there were healthy people, I believe it's 60 and older, maybe it's 65, but healthy people 60 and older, I believe it is. And they would go and they would, every year, these, these researchers would go and give these people, if they agreed, um, a battery of psychological and cognitive tests. And they do this every year until the person had died. And then the person had given consent to have their brain autopsied so they could see what the brain looked like. Hmm. And so what they had is like 10,000, no, excuse me, forgive me. So what they had is about, it, it was well over a thousand cases. They've done like 10,000 people, but a thousand cases where they've autopsied, autopsied their brain. And I'm talking about 2013. So that's probably a lot more now. Right. And what they could do is they could see the people who had Alzheimer's disease, for example, the plaques and tangles of Alzheimer's. And then um, they could look at the cognitive and, and um, psychological tests and see who was thriving. Who didn't show people like Marge? Marge showed she had intermediate level Alzheimer's disease and did not show a single symptom. Amazing. Right? No confusion, no problems with remembering names or no, nothing. She showed nothing. Now, why is that? Well, they could look back and say, okay, let's look at the stuff that Marge does. Yeah. Um, she reads a newspaper every day. She reads a lot of books. She actually has real bad back problems, so she is confined a lot. She doesn't exercise. She has a limited number of friends, although friends are very, very important. So exercise, reading, you know, um, friends, those are all very important. But what they realized about Marge is that every week she would ask the public library to send her a a box of books and her purpose in life was to read all about like the third Reich one week and to read all about, you know, World War II, you know, other parts of World War II another uh. week and, and all about, you know, brain science another week. And her purpose in life was just to read. She was an avid reader and she would look forward to those books, look forward to reading. She didn't show a single symptom of Alzheimer's. So what they realized is that when they looked across all of these thousand brains, what they realized is that people who had something to get them up in the morning, it could be grandchildren, it could be a hobby, it could be that they were involved in a political campaign, it could be that they were involved with their church or synagogue, Whatever it was, if they had a purpose in life, they were far, far more likely to have cognitive health at the end than those who didn't have a purpose in life. So it was a rather stunning figure. I mean, a third of the people who did have high purpose did show signs of Alzheimer's, but a third didn't. <laughs> right? I mean, I'm going for the third that didn't show any right symptoms on. of Alzheimer's. <laughs> right That's a on. pretty large number. <laughs> so it was um, purpose in life is really, really important. And it can, it can be not just, you know, it's not like you have to go out and save the world or start a food bank or, you know, 
stop police brutality or whatever it is, or um, you don't have to do the big things. You can have a big purpose in life and that's great, but you can also have a little purpose in life. You've always wanted to play the guitar. You've always wanted to learn Spanish. You know, you've always wanted to learn ballroom dancing. Maybe you hate crossword puzzles. Who cares? Don't do them. You know, what you want to do is right. learn how to play the guitar right. or become a docent at the museum or something that you really, really like that engages you, that gets you up in the morning and you are going to be far, far happier. Plus, most purposes in life, little purposes, bring you in contact with other people. So with my cycling, mm -hmm. I've made all sorts of friends. One of my closest friends. You call them the biker babes? Right, the biker babes. Right? <laughs> right, exactly. <laughs> so you, you have the benefit of friendship as well and these connections, yeah. which we know is really, really important. So that's, um, that's kind of my long, but much too long lecture about purpose in life, but it's really, really important. Oh my goodness. You're speaking my language. I mean, and the whole idea of, of the purpose and, and that, that idea of chasing down something that juices you up right. and, and, you know, they, I, I think they were on the crossword puzzle for a long time there. That was like the big recommendation, but some, and I, and it may have been in your book. I can't remember where I read this, but um, they were talking about how really what it is, is having to engage your mind and yeah. learning something new. Right. It's, and, and you need to be interested. Right. Or else you order, won't do it. Right. <laughs> right. Yeah. Right. And even, and, you know, people should know that physical exercise is actually incredibly good for the brain. Mm -hmm. Um you said something which I think is really true. Um, with a lot of these little purposes, it's good to have a goal. So if you are learning guitar, it's really good to figure out, okay, I want to learn how to play Hello Stranger, My Old Friend, right? I want, uh, there, there's, I want to be able to play some Bob Dylan. I want it, whatever it might be, but it's good to have a goal. And for me, and the, and the reason is, um, the reason is that goals, Goals kind of um, give you the small pings of joy that you need that you might not get in midlife. So, for example, when I um, when I was writing my book, I mean, I was used to being on air a lot. And there's this adrenaline rush that you get when you get a piece on the air. And then you're kind of like you're kind of like a heroin addicted. It's like addict <laughs> addict. <laughs> like you get it. You got to get it on the air. Got to get it on the right. air. And then you get it on and you're like, ah, but I had that, you know, on a regular basis. When I went to write a book, I didn't have that. I didn't have these regular goals that I was meeting. And so Mike adds it. I interviewed him for my book and he comes into my life and he tells me, you know, we're going to get you ready to compete in kind of the senior Olympics, the senior games in bicycling. I couldn't run anymore because um, I had some arthritis in my knee. And so I was looking for a new sport and Mike helped me set goals. You know, I'd do a 50 mile ride one day, I'd do intervals another, I'd do a rest day, but every day I had a goal and, and it was bringing me toward an achievement. Mm. And uh, what what was, you know, one, one person described midlife said, you know, when you're young, you have all of these uh, milestones, right? Right. You graduate from high school, you graduate from college, you might 
find someone, you know, fall in love, you have your first job, you have your first child, you know, there are all these milestones, but then you hit midlife and it's like one long run on sentence. There are no commas or periods or semicolons to kind of break up the long monotony of responsibility that you have. Mm -hmm. And what these small goals do, my cycling or learning to play the guitar or whatever it might do, it gives you punctuation in that long midlife. And that's what happened with me. And it got me through, got me through my book. Yeah. There's no, there's no, like you said, there's no milestones. There's, there's, we, you know, and and I was talking to a friend recently and, and, and she was like, I'm convinced that this is why midlife is so hard was, this is what she was saying is, you know, when you're young, you have a vision of yourself uh, you know, I'm talking really young, your child and right. And, and you're visioning yourself in your twenties, maybe even your thirties. Oh, I'm going to go to, I'm going to go to college. You know, maybe I'm going to get married. Maybe I'm going to have kids. Maybe I'm going to, and, and then you can kind of picture yourself like as an old person with grandkids and, and, and all, and all that. And so, but the, the midlife part of it is like this chasm of nothingness. Think about it's like, you don't even think about midlife. <laughs> it's very, it, it, you know, and what's funny about midlife is that it's actually a time where we should, it's a hard time because often you're raising kids and you've got heavy responsibilities at work and you're trying to pay your mortgage and you're thinking about college bills. And so there are a lot of, a lot of things that weigh you down, but it's also a time of real meaning because you are building something that is lasting whether it's kids or career or friendships or whatever it is, you are doing something that is lasting. And, and so it's kind of funny because people think they, they, everyone, you know, people think that midlife crisis is something that everyone experiences, but in fact, only about 10% of people have that angst that they won't achieve their goals by the time they die. That's basically what midlife crisis is. And so you have to buy a, you know, sports car and dump your spouse. I mean, like (laughs) only, Only about 10% of people have that. Most people just see that this is a hard trudging period and it's also a meaningful period. It really is. And once the kids are gone and once you're retired for Pete's sake, you know, you're kind of going to crave some of that responsibility Mm -hmm. and crave some of that daily inherent meaning that you have in, in this building, this long, boring building process. Right. Right. It's like building a cathedral, you know, stone Mm -hmm. by stone. Right. 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 Yeah. You know, um, I know one of the things that you've talked about and mentioned in your book is the U-curve of happiness. Yes. It's a really interesting concept. Yeah, that is. uh, So I actually kind of alluded to it before. It's like um, when you're in your 20s, for example, you're very high. Well, okay, I should tell you that. This this study has been done in like 80 countries and every country but one follows this pattern. It's called okay. the U-curve of happiness. So in your 20s, you know, teens and 20s, you're really happy because you think that you've got your whole life ahead of you and you'll have, you'll find the cure to cancer and you'll you'll just be able to achieve all these wonderful, wonderful things. You'll be able to win an Oscar and, and win a Pulitzer. And then what happens is in your 30s, you know, things get a little harder. You have kids, uh, you're working all the time, you know, you're maybe you're changing diapers still or whatever it might be, but you know, life is a lot harder. And you realize that those goals 
are a little that you had when your 20s may not be achievable. This is just like, this is kind of hard. I may not get there. I may not find the cure to cancer. And then in your 40s, when everything is kind of resting on your shoulders, you realize there is no way I'm going to find the cure to cancer. I mean, I got to give up that dream. And there's this small, small death. And so the bottom of our happiness is actually around age 45 in America. But then what happens is that people begin to focus on two things. They focus on friendship and relationships, and they focus on finding a meaning or purpose that gives you joy, right? Those two things. And as they begin to do that, as they begin to forget the ex what the external, you know, what the world says about your success rate, mm -hmm. as they begin to forget about the fact that they want, you know, three three BMWs in their driveway, as they begin to focus on the other things, things that they're more in control of, which is can I, how do I find meaning and how do I have friends and relationships? Mm -hmm. They start going up that U curve of happiness. So people who are in their 70s are actually happier than the robust person at 45. And it's kind of an incredible, incredible and consistent uh, finding across countries, except for Russia. <laughs> And in really? Russia, they peak at age 18, and then it's all downhill from there. <gasps> oh, my goodness. Oh, I'm sorry. I know. Poor oh, Russians. That's horrible. <laughs> For Putin. Putin's happy. <laughs> kind of. Yeah. Who knows, yeah. right? Oh, my goodness. Wow. Wow, Barbara. This is all so much. Um, so you, beyond, so beyond that book now, you, you, you're, you're in the middle of all kinds of new and exciting things right now. I kind of want to, I kind of want to move on to where, where do you see yourself going from sure. here? Um, yeah. Where do you see yourself going from here? Well, so first let me say where I've gotten to, um, because, um, I, I read the research. I talked to all the research scientists doing the little purpose was easy. I start biking. Um, the law, the finding the larger purpose was something that I had to think carefully about. And when I decided not to go back to NPR. And so what I did is I thought about and what really animates me. And to figure that one out, this is what I recommend to people, go back and think about what animated you when you were a lot younger, maybe mm -hmm. at the beginning of your career. Because I feel like that's a pure sense of who we are. I mean, especially at children, you know, children, you, you can tell, like I knew at age, age five that I wasn't going to be an accountant if I didn't really know what an accountant was, but I knew that that's not where I was headed. Mm -hmm. um, or no, let me put it this way. I don't think I was absolutely that prescient at age five, but we did find, we did find uh, my kindergarten uh, report card when I was about 40, we found it in my dad's, uh, in my, my dad's records, like in his file cabinet. And what it said when I was in kindergarten was, Barbie always listens very carefully to the stories we read and asks why people do the things they do. And she's very dexterous with the scissors. <laughs> so I put the scissors <laughs> part aside. That's not gonna be a long-term profession for me. But back then at five, it was clear that I was a, interested in stories. Mm -hmm. Why do people do things? And that's what I do now, right? Um, 
I could never be a doctor. I hate blood. I could never be an accountant. I'm not that detail oriented. I like stories. So what what I recommend that people do is go back and look at what were the things that just, wow, really animated you when you were young uh, or early in your career. And for me, what it was, was uh, Errol Morris's film, The Thin Blue Line. I remember seeing it when I was about 28 years old. And that's about Errol Morris in The Thin Blue Line did a documentary about the essentially wrong, wrongful conviction of a guy named Dale Adams in Dallas, Texas. And it was the first time that anyone had ever used any medium, print, radio, anything, to reinvestigate a case mm-hmm. and find out the truth and oh, and overturn the system essentially. You know, oh, he the conviction was overturned and and he was he was released um, after after this film came out. And so what I, I remember watching it and going, oh my gosh, you can do that. You can use journalism to right a wrong. Wow, right? you can do that. Yeah, and it never left me. And at every opportunity, when I was at NPR covering the Justice Department, at every opportunity, I tried to do stories about injustice and wrongful convictions and that kind of thing. And so I knew that that I've known for a long time that that was the animating principle in my life, injustice, showing what's going on that is unfair. I particularly like to look at it through a legal lens because that's just the way I'm wired. and so, you know, what is the law, kind of who are harmed by the law or by the law enforcement system? So when I left NPR, I thought, um, what, what is it that I really love? And I ended up calling up a guy named Jim McCluskey at Centurion Ministries. Centurion Ministries, so Jim McCluskey started this whole organization, this whole idea of reinvest, reinvestigating wrongful convictions back in 1980, 10 wow. years, early 80s, 10 years before the Innocence Project wow. even ever came to be. Mm-hmm. So this guy, Jim, was a seminarian at Princeton. Mm-hmm. And and as in his second year, he was a kind of helper chaplain at the local prison. And one of the guys there kept saying that he was innocent. And these were all murderers and rapists and kidnappers and blah, blah, blah. And and Jim's like, yeah, right. Okay, you're not innocent. Right. They but he would talk to him. Right. right. Mm-hmm. And every week, you know, all he could talk about was how he was innocent. And finally, this mm-hmm. guy said, um, Jim, why don't you, can you, will you just read my trial transcript over the Thanksgiving break? And so Jim said, sure, I'll do that. So he gave it to him. He read it over Thanksgiving break. He comes back to the prison and the guy says to Jim, so what do you think? And Jim says, well, you know, I think, I think you may be innocent. And he said, so what are you going to do about it? And he said, what do you mean? What am I going to do about it? I'm a seminarian for Pete's sake. Mm-hmm. And he said, well, you can't just go back to your little dorm room and pray about it. God uses humans and you're the only human I have. Oh my goodness. So wow. Jim took a year off from seminary, reinvestigated the case, found a pro bono lawyer, and the guy was exonerated got out of prison. And what Jim realized was that his call was not to the ministry. His call wasn't to the pulpit, I should say. His call was to the wrongly convicted. 
That was how God was going to use him. That's what he realized. Hmm. And so Jim has been, he is someone who absolutely shows purpose in life, right? This is what he's good at. He would put on his little collar <laughs> and go interview people, his minister's collar and go interview and they would confess. I like, think he was a Catholic priest and like, father, you know, I need to tell you. And he'd go, now I'm not a priest. This is not like you know, there's no peace, priest penitent privilege here, right? right? I know, Lord, right. I know, Father, but I need to tell you. And then they'd confess, and then he'd exonerate people. And it just went on, and he was, he's the yeah. father of the modern innocence movement. One guy who just followed what he was passionate about. And so I called up Jim, who's now retired, he's 77, and he's like, acts like he's 35, because he's got so much chutzpah to him. And I said, what's a, what's a case that haunts you, Jim? What's a case after, you know, you've gotten 65 people off death row or off of life sentences? What's the case that haunts you? And he said, well, that's easy. Um, ben Spencer's case mm -hmm. down in Dallas. So I reinvested. I went down there with my little microphone and it turned out that, and I'll keep this very, very short, but it turned out that Ben Spencer had been um, a black man convicted of robbing and killing a white man back in 1988. And he's been in prison for almost 34 years. And there is nothing that connects mm -hmm. him to a cr the crime, no physical evidence whatsoever. No one saw the murder or, and the robbery. It's, it's just that one woman who it turns out was not the most honest of witnesses said that she saw Jim, uh, saw Ben run away from the victim's car in their neighborhood one night. And so Ben was convicted and another person was convicted, given life in prison. Um, mm. And Jim took his case uh, in 2000. He's given life in 88. And Jim reinvestigated, got all the evidence before a, a judge. The judge ruled that this man, Ben Spencer, deserved a new trial based on actual innocence. But the system is such that this judge could not give him a new trial. He had to get permission from the Court of Criminal Appeals, the high criminal court in Texas. And the, that Texas court waited three years and then said, nah, you know what? You're not getting a new trial. There's no DNA in the case. Well, all the DNA had been thrown out. All the evidence had been thrown out. How do you prove a negative? No, you're not getting a new trial. So he faced life in prison. And so... I called, that was in 2011 that happened. So I called Jim up in 2017 and said, Jim, what's the case that haunts you? And he said, Ben Spencer's. So I went down to Dallas and worked with this private investigator who's donating his time for free. And we went all over Dallas and we knocked on doors and we found alibi witnesses and two of the four, four witnesses, can, uh, the one of the eyewitnesses recanted. There was Gladys, wow. and then two other boys. One recanted, the other was dead, but had recanted. The jailhouse snitch informant recanted. The only thing that was left was Gladys, this one woman who was a state star witness, and she wouldn't, she basically wouldn't talk to me. So I do this, I do this story for NPR and for The Atlantic. Basically, all the evidence has fallen apart, except for this one woman who says she has dementia and can't remember anything. And hmm. what happens is that serendipity, that piece runs in early 2018. And in November of 2018, a new black progressive district attorney, 
or man named John Crusoe was elected district attorney of Dallas. He reopened the case. They reinvestigated. And Ben Spencer is going to walk out of prison in the next few weeks. Yeah. They found that he didn't get a fair trial and that he should not have been sent to prison. So after 34 years, he's walking out of prison. For me, this has been the most meaningful project I've ever done. I don't have children, so I can't like look to them and say, gee, that was a worthwhile endeavor. And I brought into the world, you know, right. this wonderful boy or girl. I have a wonderful stepdaughter. But, you know, I don't, I can't take zero credit for making Vivian into the incredible woman she is. She's now, you know, 27, 26. I can't take credit for that. Um, but so this, when I look back, this will be the most mm. meaningful thing I've ever done. It's only one man, but it's part of a larger endeavor because now I'm writing a book and there's probably going to be a documentary about it. So it's part of a larger endeavor to show the problems with the legal system um, in a way that I think is pretty compelling. And um, so, so that's what I'm doing. And I'll tell you, it's not work, right? There's, it's not work. Right. I mean, it is the most fun I've ever had in my life. I know that sounds grim, but I've also, you know, made friends with his ex-wife. He begged his ex-wife, his wife to divorce him so that she could have her own life and find someone else. And she stayed so loyal to him. And now they're probably going to get married again. Um, and because she has been his most loyal supporter. I've got a, I mean. And he had kids, right? And, yes, and he had a child. He's never woman. seen his child outside of the prison walls because his wife was pregnant when he was uh. arrested. So he's, the child is now 33 years old and he has to establish a relationship with him, a real relationship. And it's going to be hard to navigate that. It's going to be hard to navigate being out of prison after 34 years. Yeah. But, but it's been, you know, the, here's the thing. We think we can't really make a difference, but we can. Mm -hmm. And, and we can by just saying, what are my passions and talents and skills and experiences and how can I channel those to do something that might help someone else yeah this we're is so we're example. also afraid to acknowledge our own power you know yeah you know that's true I yeah. know I am yeah. I know I am but it's just step by step like you know just one little thing after another and suddenly Mm -hmm. A guy's walking out of prison and it can be all mm -hmm. sorts of things. It can be, you know, believing in a political candidate that you support. It can be all sorts of things. And, and so this is, this is just what I kind of think about midlife is we've got all these resources in terms of years and experience and skills that we've developed. And it's time to use them for the greater good. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Here, here. <laughs> let's go people not over yet it is not over yet no it really isn't no oh my goodness well I was going to ask you you know what what movie had a big influence on you but I think we have yes answer. oh my goodness wow what so here's a question for you because because since you asked um Jim that what keeps you up at night now mm. There are a couple of things that keep me up. One is personal and the other is more global. Um, 
what keeps me up at night is personally is like, oh my gosh, did I make a mistake in that story? Oh my gosh, did I burn someone? You know, did I misspeak? Did I do something wrong in my in the course of my journalism? That I mean, every journalist wakes up in a panic in the middle of the night when they're going, oh no. What did I did I say that right? I did that yesterday with my NPR interview. You know, I woke up and thought, oh my gosh, did I say that the victim was 34 and not 33? Uh-huh. And I'm like eyes looking up. And I know that sounds small, but everyone has it in their own area. I mean, you know, finances or whatever it is. For me, it's just, mm-hmm. did I blow it? But there's something else that keeps me up at night, and this is what drives me. And it's this kind of the systematic kind of injustice of um, of organizations. So for me, it's a criminal justice system. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when people are harmed by a system that is bigger than they are, sometimes it's our, our workplace. You know, you don't know what it is, but when mm-hmm. I see someone like Ben Spencer caught in a trap, and it's there's nothing he can do about it. It's but crazy. it's small things too. It's small things too. It's, yeah. you know, systematic racism. It's a way we, we, you know, our company may treat someone. It may be, you know, I've watched, I've watched people be kind of hounded out of the organization in a, in a, in cruel ways. I mean, this stuff happens. Um, and so that's what really bothers me is kind of the, the systematic, I won't say the systematic discrimination or or unkindness that can happen in large organizations, whether it's government or private organizations or church or whatever it might be, um, that really keeps me up at night. And I actually think that's a good thing because if it didn't, yeah, I wouldn't have been working on this story about Ben Spencer. Mm -hmm. So it can drive you to do what you should be doing. Wow. Well, I'm going to put links to, I mean, you sent me that Atlantic article this morning. I'm going to have, for for anybody listening, I'm going to have links to a lot of the things that we've talked about today. If you want to go deeper into researching this and finding out more about the amazing work that you're doing, Barbara. Oh, my oh gosh. thank you. Wow. Um, wow. Is there anything else you want to say before I let you go? I know you have another meeting to get on to, but. You know, I'm trying to think. Um... There's just one thing, which I'm going to sound like a broken record, but in when I was researching my book, um, I interviewed people who had won um, kind of an award from a place called Encore.org. And this was a, a fairly sizable award for people who had used their skills that they had developed for the greater good. Mm-hmm. So you had people who started um, intergenerational living for people, or, or you had a guy, a lawyer who had been a bankruptcy lawyer, lawyer who actually was helping now people retain their homes, right? So you had, you had people who were using their skills and flipping it over and pivoting and, and helping other people with it. And I remember what one person said is, she said, you know, Barb, just just go for the big purpose, go for purpose, do something for someone else. You can't believe 
how good it will make you feel. It will change your life. You'll never stop operating that way. Once you have felt what it, what, once you have sensed what it is like to help other people and to use your skills and talents and experience to help others, you will never look back. Just find a purpose and do it. Mm. And I'll, I'll never forget her saying that. And I tried to do it. Oh my gosh. That's, that, that's it. <laughs> it was for me at least. That is, it's spot on. Thank you. Thank you so much for being here. It's really been fun. Thanks for your good questions oh. and letting me talk. As you, yeah. can tell, I, as you can tell, I like to talk. <laughs> Never stand be between a radio reporter and their microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Well, I, for, for me, this is just a, a seminal moment, high point. I'm just, oh, just amazed you. and happy to have you here. Thank you. Thank you. Well, there you have it. I want to take a minute to thank Mike Adsit for introducing me to Barbara. I feel so fortunate to have been able to talk to both of them. And I'm so happy to have been able to put their episodes back to back for you to listen to. How cool is it that they formed a strong friendship that blossomed from an interview for her book? It just goes to show that you never know who might come into your life and help shape it when you start exploring your purpose. If you want to know more about Barbara or read more about Benjamin Spencer's story as he's being released from jail after all these years, I'll have information and links for you in the show notes. You can just go to latebloomerliving.com forward slash podcast and click on the show notes for episode 36. And a reminder that while you're there, you can also find a link to the sign-up sheet for your free guide, Five Steps to Your Midlife Reboot. Thanks so much for listening. Can you, by the way, take a minute, another reminder to share this with a friend who might enjoy it. Did you know that you can email people the link to this episode directly from the Apple Podcast app? It's pretty cool. I do it all the time when I hear something that I know my husband or a friend would appreciate. So thanks again for staying with me all the way to the end. I hope you have a fantastic week. Stay safe and well. Talk soon. <laughs>